We are controlling transmission. WLTK DB. Let's talk. Alternative Talk Radio. WLTKDB.com. Well, they say that you're I'm Paranormal Pete, and I'm on a journey to seek answers to the questions that have crossed all of our minds. What happens to us when we die? Is there an afterlife? I'm a regular guy who discovered the gift of psychic mediumship in my 30s. My passion for history and the unknown have put me right here, right now. My mantra for anything paranormal is, we don't know much and anything is possible. Join me as we find our way through the stories, evidence, and experiences of the paranormal and beyond in search of answers, even if that leads to more questions. Are you with me? Hey there, everybody. Paranormal Pete Show, Tuesday, December 1st. I'm your host, Pete Orbea. Thanks for joining tonight on Let's Talk Radio. That's www.wltkdb.com. Thanks for joining me. It's my second episode. did my first one a couple weeks back. It was a lot of fun. We had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun, kind of, I think I was just trying to introduce myself and my weird story. Uh, but tonight, uh, very happy to uh, bring on my first guest uh, after the first break tonight, and I'm bringing on Mr. Casey Goodwin of Oregon Paranormal, and he's just a, a great investigator, great researcher, and he's one of the most credible guys in the field of the paranormal research um, that I know, and so very lucky to have him on tonight, and so we'll be bringing Casey on after the first break tonight. Um, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Mine was quiet and uh, it was nice. <laughs> it was a nice quiet time and I hope everyone else uh, made it through the weird, weird Thanksgiving holiday that we had this year. Um, but, uh, you know, I was able to stop and kind of take stock of what I'm thankful for and I hope uh, everyone else out there did too. Um so tonight, along with Casey, so Casey's uh, with Oregon Paranormal. He's a co-founder for that. And I love Oregon. I've been there numerous times. I've only been to Portland a few times, but uh, it's just, it's a neat state. It's got varied landscape, that's for sure, from uh, Ontario to Seaside, uh, where the Oregon Ghost Conference is held. Um, so I did some looking around and, and I wanted to bring a couple of stories that I thought were kind of cool about locations in Oregon before we bring Casey on. And one of the stories I'm going to talk about, I'll be asking Casey about, cause I know he's been there and has had some experiences there. Um, so, but thanks again for joining us on the paranormal Pete show and episode two. And so the first story I wanted to bring you guys tonight, and I'll do this every once in a while where I'll bring you guys, um, you know, a story. I love historical research. Um, Bo has been a 
history dweeb, I guess, <laughs> history dork. Always loved it. Whatever it was it had to do with history, um, I was always fascinated by it. And so that's kind of how I my interest started with the paranormal. And so uh, I like to look up historical things about places and then look at the the paranormal accounts if it is a haunted reported haunted location and so the first one i want to bring to you tonight is um the lone fur cemetery in portland and what i found it's one of the oldest if not the oldest uh established cemetery and it's in portland um so the lone fur cemetery uh began on private land and it was owned by james and elizabeth stevens and they owned a ferry service and they would ferry things back and forth across the Willamette uh, river in the 1830s and 1840s. And they also had a big farm. This is where the cemetery was founded was on the farm with just one grave in 1854. Now, later that year, a steamship exploded killing 24 of its 50 passengers. And it sounds like it was a pretty gruesome scene there. Um, well, they had to do something with, with the remains, and so the owner of the land set aside 10 acres of the land for a cemetery. And by 1866, uh, so about 12 years later, uh, it had grown to 30 acres and was named Lone Fir for its one fir tree standing on the land. And the founders, James and Elizabeth, um, their headstone actually faces the tree as if they're looking out uh, to the tree. And so nearby their gravesite, there's a white stone obelisk that honors this gentleman, Dr. Hawthorne, who ran an insane, insane asylum back in the 1800s. Now, when families wouldn't claim the bodies of a uh, body of a deceased patient, Hawthorne would get them buried on his own dime. Dr. Hawthorne ended up burying 132 of his patients in the cemetery on his own dime. Now, the weird thing is, is no one knows exactly where the 132 forgotten burials were laid to rest. But many believe that they were in what's known as Block 14, which is the southeast corner of the cemetery, where the unmarked graves of many Chinese railroad workers uh, were laid to rest. And so that's where I think most people um, believe that these 132 patients from the insane asylum were buried. Um, in a sense, they were forgotten souls. Uh, it's pretty sad. All the deceased persons buried in three other downtown cemeteries were moved to the Lone Fir, and it was the sole burial spot for 40 years until the Riverview Cemetery opened in 1893. So they moved everybody who was at the other cemeteries into this one. It became a pretty big cemetery. Um, like many cemeteries, though, no money was set aside for the care of the cemeteries. And by 1928, it was just covered with blackberries everywhere. And there were over 10,000 graves without headstones. That is a lot. As a final resting place for the Portland's pioneers, founders early Chinese immigrants, asylum patients, firefighters, and many more, the cemetery holds plenty of secrets and lore. With over 25,000 graves, including 16 of Portland mayors, this is one cemetery that has plenty of wonderful life stories and memories 
but you can't deny the human aspect of a dark side in life with disturbing memories that are etched into the stones that line the cemetery, or at least the burials who are lucky enough to have a headstone. So what do you guys think? Do you think the founders of the cemetery are still watching over their land from their eternal stone resting place? It's kind of cool. I want to check that place out. Um, doing some looking, it looks like it's open from dawn until dusk. Uh, daily so it's something people can go check out and looks like a, a wonderful cemetery it's pretty cool and i'll just kind of note that i live next to a pretty cool old cemetery too established in 1856 here in port gamble uh, called the buena vista cemetery so this place i think is going to be on my plate my checklist to go check out and if anybody's been there who's maybe listening right now join the station chat and you can comment and um, ask questions. So if you've been there, maybe you had an experience there at the Lone First Cemetery, uh, let me know. Let us know. Let all the listeners know. Um, now, this next one I wanted to talk about, um, which I know I've heard Casey talk about it before, Casey Goodwin, and it's the Shanghai Tunnels. Now, everyone in the Northwest heard of the Shanghai Tunnels. Um, I, it's just an interesting, interesting, the, the whole story is interesting to me and, and just historically what they, what they allegedly did and probably did, uh, was pretty amazing. So I guess I feel lucky I live in this time, but, uh, so what I found on the Shanghai tunnels was I actually pulled a report from, uh, Oregon historical society project. And this was written by a guy named Richard Engman. And it's just interesting to me. So the Shanghai Tunnels, uh, they, they do um, ghost tours there. And someday I will make my way onto that ghost tour. Um, I, I always want to check out other ghost tours since I lead one uh, here in Port Campbell. And it's, it's always fun to kind of see how uh, other people do it as well. And doing the ghost walk tours and and i'm sure all these guys you gotta love storytelling and that's just there's so many cool stories ghost stories out there that it's it's a dream and so um always looking for something new to check out but shanghai tunnels i want to talk about since casey's out of oregon let's i wanted to bring that one in so since the 1970s a myth has grown up that propounds the existence of a secret network of tunnels beneath the streets and buildings of the Portland waterfront. The tunnels are said to have been constructed to support the illegal practice of forcibly supplying crews to outbound sailing ships in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The practice was known as Shanghaiing, and the alleged tunnels are known today as the Shanghai Tunnels. While historians have found no evidence to substantiate the existence of a tunnel network, the myth and experiences have persisted. The tunnels are said to have run between buildings and under streets in the downtown waterfront area. Some 1,500 or more men, that's right, I said 1,500, are said to have been abducted annually, and some people have claimed that the tunnels were used to facilitate kidnapping women for prostitution. The existence of the tunnels is alleged to have been purposefully suppressed in order to protect Portland's genteel reputation. You hear that a lot in historical stories about towns trying to 
you know, hide the, hide the bad stuff, hide the quote unquote bad stuff, the taboo stuff. You know, they want to protect their reputation. You find that all over old, you know, historical stories of towns and cities. Um, Shanghai describes the practice of kidnapping a man for service aboard a sailing ship. A Shanghai sailor, usually drunk or incapacitated by knockout, captain shortly before sailing time, for which the crimp collected a fee, otherwise known as blood money. The practice arose out of a web of international maritime laws and practices in the 19th century. When a captain ruled his crew through a labor contract, so they had a lot of leeway with this labor contract, sea captains could be desperate to replenish their crew Strength of sailors found that jumping ship and abandoning their contract while in port was an escape from continued servitude. Soliciting crews for the return voyage was the responsibility of the ship's captain, and in Portland, as in many other West Coast ports, a captain could use a crimp to fill his roster. The long trips from Europe around Cape Horn or trips from Asia often caused many of the ship's crew to abandon their contract. They'd just be... They're ready to be done when they made port. The extent of Shanghaiing in Portland is unknowable, but data compiled by protective organizations such as the Sailors Union of the Pacific indicate that it was primarily a problem on ships in trans-Pacific trade and that it was common in the West Coast ports of Puget Sound, the Columbia River, and especially San Francisco Bay. The development of large steam-powered ships provided better working conditions and more stable employment for sailors, with the result that Shanghai had ceased by the end of World War I. Any good news there? In 1933, journalist Stuart Holbrook broadcast stories of Shanghai and Bowdy Times on the Portland waterfront in a series of romanticized articles in the Sunday Oregonian. His stories, several of dubious authenticity or attribution contributed to the emergence many years later of stories of a network of underground tunnels used for the Shanghai trade. In the 1970s, articles appeared in Portland newspapers featuring Michael P. Jones, who was a manager of the Transit Bank, a social service agency in the Old Town area. He was identified as a person who discovered the long hidden tunnels. Now, while Jones noted that the tunnels had been built for activities such as moving merchandise between buildings and basements uh, and was exits from gambling dens and houses of prostitution that might experience the occasional police raid, he did emphasize their role in the Shanghai trade. Now, historians of the Old Town District have confirmed that Shanghai and crimping occurred there along with other criminal and unsavory activities. I just love that story. So some historians can establish, you know, a network down there. Uh, but then other historians that are more specific to the area are finding that that stuff really did happen. Now, Seattle's got a underground as well. And I think San Francisco might as well. It's just fascinating what goes on underneath, right? Or behind the, the closed door. Um, I was think of the uh, Walker Ames house here in Port Gamble. So 
gambling and, and drinking and tomfoolery, you know, wasn't really, uh, it was frowned upon here in Port Gamble. And uh, if you don't know Port Gamble, it's established in 1853 and it was a sawmill town uh, here just um, across Puget Sound and north a little bit. And so, uh, you know, drinking and gambling, that kind of stuff was frowned upon. Um, but there was a dance hall that was nearby that was out considered outside of town um, that I think that a lot of that stuff was was happening. Now, one time in the Walker Ames house and this I just love this. So, you know, as I said, drinking and gambling and that kind of stuff was was frowned upon. They wanted to have a the good town reputation. Now, in the Walker Ames during a tour. Uh, a friend of mine had left an audio device on the first floor and I had taken the group down into the basement and I, you can hear me on the audio talking about, about the basement there and you hear somebody start to shuffle cards. That's the best way. It's the only thing I can think that makes that sound. It was like someone shuffling a deck of cards and then you hear someone say cards, which is kind of funny that they would say that. And then you hear what sounds like a poker chip hit the floor and roll around and kind of settle. You know, think of like a coin or a poker chip, you know, hitting a wood floor, rolling around, and then it's settling. And I just thought that was so funny because from where it's, seemed like the sound would have come from was what we call um i call it the smoking room it's it was the den uh, there was a small library in there um probably where the gentlemen of the house uh held meetings and stuff like that and so i just always thought it was it was funny that you know drinking and gambling and that sort of stuff was frowned upon but might have caught a piece of audio where it sounds like somebody playing poker possibly or some sort of cards with chips um you know right there in the walker ames house right in the middle of the house and so i just thought that was that was great now i'm going to talk a little bit about casey before we bring him on we're going to take a, a station break here it's at 17 past the hour and so casey's been to Port Gamble a number of times and uh, he's been in the, the Walker Ames house. And so I'll probably ask him about that. But uh, as I mentioned before, he's the co-founder of Oregon paranormal and he's been doing paranormal investigation for a pretty long time. Um, and someone I've learned from, you know, as far as critical thinking and investigation tactics, things like that. Um, so I'm really excited to have him on tonight. Now, next week, um, I'm bringing on medium psychic medium, Seth Michael. And so he's going to be coming on for episode three and that's next Tuesday night, 8 PM Pacific, 11 PM Eastern right here on let's talk radio. And so I'm super stoked to have Seth on. If you listen to episode one of the show, uh, you heard me talk about Seth and, and how he kind of helped me with my psychic awakening experience. And so I'm really excited to have him on for next week. Also coming up um, soon is 
Uh, I'm hosting uh, my first virtual gallery reading. Uh, I've done a number of gallery readings, but never a virtual one. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, and that's going to be on Saturday, uh, December 12th at 7 p.m. And you can get tickets at portgambleparanormal.com and go to the Paranormal Pete Show page and you'll be able to find tickets. There's also a Facebook event out there uh, as well. So now that we've got some of the housekeeping done, we're looking forward to bringing uh, my first guest, Casey Goodwin, on after the station break. We're going to pay the bills here and take a quick break. We'll see you on the other side. stations in the world we're one of them we are controlling transmission wltk db let's talk alternative talk radio wltkdb.com patreon is a place for creators we're one of them visit our patreon page at patreon.com slash wltkdb check out all the unique support tiers we offer you can get early release episodes station mugs and t-shirts free station service work and much more help the station reach its one thousand dollar per month goal to make our station totally ad free patreon.com slash wltkdb we appreciate your support ever wanted to host your own radio show if your answer is yes, then the time to act is now. WLTKDB Let's Talk is now accepting new programming more affordable than ever. You create the show idea and we'll take care of the rest. Not only do we create your program intro and provide broadcast training, but also syndicate you to popular outlets like Apple and Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and more. You get all of this starting at 100 bucks per month. Three packages to choose from and built to make your wallet happy. Contact us at WLTKDB.com with your show idea and let's bring your dream to life. All topics accepted and you have full rights to your program. Contact us today and reserve your spot on WLTKDB Let's Talk. What are you waiting for? Let's do this. Maggie Reiki is a full-service Reiki therapy center offering both in-person and distance Reiki sessions. Reiki is a gentle healing energy that can assist in clearing, repairing, and maintaining energy that is vital for optimal health. Reiki can also assist with anxiety, depression, and even addiction. You can schedule a Reiki session by visiting our website, www.mackeyreiki.com. That's www.m-a-c-k-e-y-r-e-i-k-i.com. Welcome back to the Paranormal Pete Show. I'm your host, Pete Orbea, and we're on Let's Talk Radio, WLTKDB.com. And drumroll, please. We've got my first guest here, bringing in a guy I've come to know over the years. Met him through the ghost conferences and other events as well. Uh, it's my pleasure to bring on Casey Goodwin. How you doing? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I appreciate you being on. Um, you're one of my my first go tos for this because I you've got a lot of great stuff to say about the paranormal and research and no the, pressure, 
no pressure. You got to nail it tonight and say <laughs> everything right, all the right answers. You got it. <laughs> but uh, so Casey's co-founder of Organ Paranormal. Um, he's also a member of a group called the Extrasensory League of Extrasensory Gentlemen, and they do events like uh, Paranormal Boot Camp, and which I've I've taken that. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, but you've kind of got it into filmmaking as well. Um, yeah, yeah. It's part of it. Yeah. Documentary film, uh, feature documentary film called the permanence of paranormal case study. And we'll get into that in a little bit as well. So he's, you've kind of done a lot of things. What else do you do, Casey? Well, I'm a dad to two boys. <laughs> um, I'm married. I have a bunch of chickens, a couple dogs, uh, I work in the comic book industry and, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much me. Right on. And it's so, are you allowed to say which comic book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I work for a, a, a small little, uh, art house comic book company in, uh, Milwaukee, Oregon known as uh, dark horse comics. Oh yeah. Yep. That's, that's not a little one. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're pretty, we're pretty large. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Be confident, man. Uh, it, well, that's, you know, I think that's so cool that you get to do that and you get to go to, um, comic cons when they happen. <laughs> yeah. When uh, they happen, <laughs> when they happen and you get to represent dark horse and, uh, you get to meet some cool people and, um, it's kind of a fun. great gig. Yeah. It seems like it's just a fun gig and, and some of the stuff you've gotten, you know, like some of your He-Man stuff. Uh, I just, dude, I'm a I nerd. think. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> we can co we can co nerd. Um, I think that's that's awesome. I mean, uh, I think we've got cool stuff, you know, that we can look back on and get. You know, hey, I had that as a kid, and it's way cooler than the generation before us. You know what I mean? It's, we got way better yeah. stuff. <laughs> you know, t- touching on He Man. Um, you know, working for Dark Horse opened up so many different opportunities for me. One of them was getting to meet one of the guys who actually created He-Man and like sitting and having a 30 minute conversation with this dude in his early eighties and just seeing his eyes light up when he, when he found out that there was somebody in the building that was just as passionate about He-Man as he was told one of the best days of my life. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up with that. That was my gig, you know, that it's still my gig, dude. Uh, It's ridiculous. But this (laughs) stuff just never goes away. Yeah. Now let me ask you this, um, star Wars or star Trek. You know, if you would have asked me before the pandemic, I would have totally said star Wars, but I went down a star Trek rabbit hole in March, just on a whim. And, um, I'm hooked, dude. I've literally binge watched the original three seasons of the original show like eight or nine (laughs) times now in the last eight months. So I I have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first step is admitting it, Casey. Yep. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I've always been uh, a crossover, I guess. A lot of my friends are, you know, vigilant one way or the other. And I've always just liked both. Yeah. And, you know, I was the same way. I used to be super vigilant. I, I love, don't get me wrong. I love Star Wars, but when, you know, you, you talk about the two franchises, there is more like science wrapped up in actual Star Trek 
than there right. is in Star Wars. So I totally understand like where Neil deGrasse Tyson comes from when he's talking about um, how there's really no contest when when you talk about spaceships. It's always got to be the Enterprise. Right. <laughs> there's points. <laughs> there's points both ways. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I just you know I'm I'm glad we uh, you and I grew up when we did. <laughs> Dude. Right. Yeah, I feel pretty lucky in that sense. Um, yeah, we, we, had like a, we had it all. It could be a lot worse. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, as much as I would love to spend two hours talking about science fiction and, and He-Man and stuff, <laughs> I brought you on to talk about some paranormal stuff. Oh, um, that old that old thing. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, so... You know, you're the co-founder of Oregon Paranormal, but how long have you had an active interest in the in the paranormal? So, yeah, yeah. So, so my interest started when I was 13. Um, I used to watch with my dad actually. Um, even before uh, before that, um, we were big fans of like Ripley's Believe It or Not when Jack Palance was doing um, oh yeah the hosting and yes that kind of opened up another uh, avenue to uh, in search of with uh, obviously with Nimoy that introduced me to like people like Hans Holzer. And, um, and then, you know, I got into like unsolved mysteries and I really, I always found myself gravitating towards like the, the paranormal aspects of those shows. And at a certain point I wanted to find out, you know, is what I'm seeing on these shows, is there any validity to them? And when I was 13, I kind of found myself, you know, at this local yard sale and I was kind of looking at things. And, you know, at the time I was, I was just getting out of, you know, my, you know, he-man phase and all that stuff and starting (laughs) to get into a little more serious genres of, of interests. And sure. I, I found this blanket that was on, on uh, this yard and it was just, there were just tons of books. And, and two of the books that caught my attention was, um, and I butchered the title every time. And I, you know, I, I made a point to grab it before we sat down, but I didn't, it's the, uh, I think it's hauntings, poltergeists and ESP. It's, it's, uh, the parapsychologist handbook that was uh, written by Lloyd Auerbach back right. in, I think like 83, 84, somewhere around there. And then the other book was the poltergeist written by William G. Rawl. And those nice. were really the catalyst that kind of drove me in to really want to find out if there was anything to, you know, hauntings and apparitions and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, shortly after that, I kind of started doing my own thing and going and doing these stakeouts, you know, you hear stories <laughs> and, you know, all the, the local lore in your town. So you want to kind mm-hmm. of experience these things. And right. The places I was going were highly dangerous for a 13 year old. I mean, I was, uh, I was going to Boyle Heights in just, just in like the really kind of at the time, it was a really, really bad part of LA, but that was where Linda Vista hospital was. And it had just recently closed down. So obviously there were stories about that place and there was a Canyon um, that separated uh, my hometown of Whittier from uh, Hacienda Heights, which was the other town on the other side of the Canyon. And it was called Turnbull Canyon. And there was obviously tons of stories that were uh, accumulated over the years about that place, including uh, a charter plane that crashed uh, because of uh, fog they hit the side of a hillside as the, on their way. I think they were on their way to either LAX or Long Beach. 
and essentially everybody on board died. Oh, geez. So, you know, you hear stories about that and, you know, as a kid, I wanted to go and experience that stuff. I mean, you know, haunted, haunted houses and like haunted, uh, structures that had burned down. So basically you're just going to like the foundation and just basically sitting there and just kind of observing and listening and, and just taking it all in. Right. So did you on any of those, um, I love that you call it a stakeout. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's literally what it is. Yeah. On any of those, I mean, were you, did you have like a a tape recorder, you know, did you take anything with you? Yeah, I had a little tape. It was a, it was a, obviously it was a cuts, a cassette player. Uh It, um, it was, it was literally, it had one speaker. It had a handle that you kind of, kind of towed it around. I mean, it was definitely not a boom box or anything like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had, uh, I don't know, maybe six or seven cassette, brand new cassette tapes, Maxell. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> product plug in there. And if anyone wants to get some cassette tapes later, um, and you know, we just, kind of hit record and you know obviously we had flashlights and stuff like that my buddy had just recently got his license so the sky was kind of the limit at that point in time and we just did these stakeouts and uh nothing happened at any of the places we ever went to but it was still something that really piqued my interest and you know i carried it on up until you know i moved up here yeah and so did the did the books, you know, the Lloyd Arbach book and the, and the raw book, uh, the poltergeist one, did those, I mean, were those like a big influence for you? Big time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it, it really opened me up to, I mean, cause obviously at the time there were no, there were no real TV shows about, you know, ghost hunting or parapsychologists or paranormal research in general, aside from, you know, the, the fringe shows like in search of and unsolved mysteries right. and stuff like that. But even those didn't really dive in as deep as, you know, I really wanted to dive in. And at the time, right. um, you, the, you know, trying to get a hold of, one of these businesses at the time, when you're that young, you think, Oh, a parapsychologist is a business and blah, blah, blah. How do I find <laughs> right. a phone number? Because obviously there was no internet at the mm-hmm. time. And really the only way you could get a hold of these people was by looking at the reference list at the back of these old books. And obviously right. by the time I got these books in the nineties, half the businesses that were referenced or half these researchers that were referenced had either gone under or they changed their phone numbers or their PO box had been closed down. So I was really kind of flying on my own for a while. But you always had the books though, to kind of lean on, which I, I think that's so cool. Oh yeah. And you know, when you talk about like Lloyd's book, the great thing about Lloyd's book um, was that he, he kind of really laid it out um, and, and made it accessible for anybody who wanted to get into the paranormal. These are the steps that you could take to kind of achieve that. Um, all right, the way down right. to, you know, the questions that you would ask the clients, the questions mm-hmm. that you could ask during uh, a particular EVP session, um, mm-hmm. including this really long list of, um, gosh, and I don't know what they would necessarily be called, but it's basically um, kind of a word association list that you would hand to a psychic. So if a psychic was to go into a building, okay, they right. basically kind of circled these words that they that would come to mind and then you would kind of hold that. Um, which I thought was really interesting uh, because, you know, at the time I was just interested in the, the, the research end. And so parapsychology was kind of 
something that I wasn't really aware of yet. So right. Lloyd's book really opened me up to that. Wow. Yeah. And I've, I got to be honest, you know, the world of parapsychology wasn't made aware in my world until uh, about 20, 2011. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I was, uh, you know, uh, obviously loved Ghostbusters. I mean, oh, great flick. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but you know, I just, I think that's interesting that, that at an early age, you, you kind of grasped onto those kind of bigger concepts of, of research. I, it's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so what was, you, know, you mentioned, you know, um, Boyle Heights and stuff, what was your, you know, those were like your, let's say early stakeouts, right? So what yeah, was yeah. your, what was your first official investigation where you, you would call it a paranormal investigation? Um, that one would probably be, gosh, that was officially. So, so when we formed, when Scott Riedel and I, uh, formed Oregon Paranormal back in 2009, um, we spent a good year, uh, coming up with different forms and everything, making sure we had all of our ducks in a row before we started going out and investigating. And, um, I was lucky enough, my uncle owned a bar, uh, here in, in the town that I live in now called, uh, at the time it was called the white horse saloon. And, um, I remember him always, you know, Christmas, he would always talk about, you know, these ghost sightings at this, at this building. Mm-hmm. So it always kind of piqued my interest. And I would always ask him like, Hey, have you seen so-and-so or, or whatnot? Um, and he really kind of let us cut our teeth as an organized uh, first time as an organized group. And when I mean organized, it's just me and Scott. And <laughs> this time we had kind of, uh, more of a game plan than really what I had originally uh, as just kind of a solo researcher. I was just originally going in with a pen and a paper, just kind of taking notes and the cassette tape uh, recorder. But now we had, we had a, I think it was like a super uh, camcorder or something like that, nice. that didn't see in the dark. So <laughs> we had a mag light that we would attach to it um, so that we could see in the dark. Oh, man, Never occurred cool. to us to just turn the damn lights on, <laughs> but um, yeah, we so we we cut our teeth on on that one, and we dude, it was it was a it was a huge learning curve because you realize that um, there's a lot to an investigation that has nothing to do with the paranormal, mm-hmm. and uh, we found out that a lot of the issues that they were um, you know dealing with in this location was just shoddy wiring. That had wow. been basically um, rather than hiring, you know, licensed contractors to do an addition or to, to you know, put a new socket on, on a wall. Right. Basically, they would they would hire the barflies that were handymen. And right. I found things that I would I would never uh, allow anybody into an establishment <laughs> knowing what I know about that building now. I mean, it was a death trap. Wow. <laughs> there were extension cords uh, running un- underneath or above tile uh, through the rafters to uh, another like fluorescent lighting conduit box and stuff like that. I mean, there was, there was no actual um, wiring that was done professionally in that place. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> to the point where, I mean, we were literally pegging out our EMF gauges just go, just getting within Everywhere. 10 feet of the electrical box and 
the EMF gauge would shut off because it couldn't go any higher. <laughs> and that was one of those areas where people were experiencing, you know, feelings of dread and, and that they were seeing shadow figures and all that being stuff. watched. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Being watched. Yeah, exactly. That's so I think you touched on a, a couple of really cool points there that, you know, for anybody out there who's thinking about starting to investigate, or maybe you have a new team that there is a bit of a learning curve and, and fortunately for you, it sounds like, you know, you guys were able to kind of get through that learning curve, you know, not with like a, an official client or something like that. Right. Yeah. And, and see that that's, that's kind of the slippery slope right there because like when I was in California and I was doing my independent stuff, um, we were going to abandoned places. So we didn't have clients to work with. We didn't have right. families that were looking for answers and help. So when Scott and I started taking on clients, we had that realization like, oh, you know, we can't just come in, record data, look for potential evidence within that data, present it to them and then walk away. We have to find solutions for, for these clients because they've literally called us and we were the last person we were the last ditch effort after calling you know they've called churches they've called contractors and electricians and they weren't getting answers they'd call the police and things like that so by the time someone gets to the point where they need to call a paranormal investigator they're desperate for answers and help right so and that's kind of the approach you know once you guys realize that i mean i've always known your guys' work to be, you know, really client facing and, and like you said, you mm-hmm. know, helping beyond the investigation, you know, you don't just want to come in like a tornado and, right. you know, record yeah, all exactly. this stuff yeah. and then, and then just dump it on them and leave. So, you know, what kind of, um, you know, were, were you guys getting a lot of cases that were like desperate family stuff like that early on to kind of make you guys solidify that approach? We were actually, we were, we were having uh, clients call us that had, you know, young children that they were really afraid for, and they didn't know whether or not this was something that they needed to be afraid of. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of that stems from, you know, what they'd either seen on TV or seen in a movie and, you know, just kind of getting past that and, and having like a real serious sit down conversation with them to find out, you know, one, what is it that they hope to achieve from an invest, like a full scale case study, Mm -hmm. because, you know, a full, a full scale case study for Oregon paranormal can last anywhere from six to eight months. And that, that consists of all sorts of, you know, background data that we're collecting, whether it's, you know, it's geological, uh, sometimes we'll bring in contractors and electricians to check out the building um, because there, there are a lot of hidden dangers in a building that can uh, have adverse effects on, on humans. And a lot of times that's where these hauntings come from is just this reaction that the human body is having to something like mold or high uh, levels of EMF. So um, sitting down with the clients and, you know, really trying to put their, their mind at ease. Now, now the crazy thing about Scott is Scott came from a counseling background. So he's, 
he works with children or he at, at the time he was a counselor for school so he worked with you know junior high kids high school kids and he was you know really good at reaching not only the families but the the kids in general right. and he was always really good about you know getting down to their level and chatting with them and getting them to a point where they understand this stuff and um, that it shouldn't be feared and you know once we once we got to that level with with our clients the rest was a breeze because you know yeah there's there's so much misinformation out there that you know once you once you find somebody who's willing to give you the information that's um going to put you at ease and help you sleep at night in your own home that you're you know mm-hmm. that you're supposed to feel safe in i mean i think that's that's right. that's the takeaway here right yeah so you know what do you think um, I mean, what's more rewarding for you guys? Is it, you know, is it helping the client or, you know, is it, you know, possible evidence that you can possibly gather during the research? It's it's a mix of both. I mean, obviously um, helping the clients and, and you know, seeing their, uh, their stress level, you know, lift off their shoulders after a case study is concluded. And and when I say concluded, I just mean like the active portion of a case study. We never actually closed right. a case. So our past clients are always constantly contacting us, um, which is great. Um, Cause they, they, you know, they're comfortable enough after an investigation that, you know, they'll, they'll call us from inside the house and they'll talk about, you know, things that they've experienced since the investigation. And this is, this can be, you know, a, a range of years between, yeah. ending a case study and, um, and whatnot. Um, but then there's the, the, the evidence aspect and, you know, every once in a while we do find, you know, pieces of evidence and, and, you know, that's, that's obviously one of the driving forces for why we're still around is we, not only do we want to help the clients, but, you know, we want to help, you know, forward the field in a positive way. Right. No, yeah. I mean, we've got to be pushing for doing things in a, in a, credible manner <laughs> exactly and that and that that includes peer review um right. by people outside of the paranormal community whether it's you know specialists in video or audio or mm-hmm. um um you know even reaching out to the skeptical community i mean right we're not um we're not worried about being um told that you know something that we may have construed as evidence at one point is just a drawer closing or, you know, something. Right. Um, sometimes it helps when you have a second, third or fourth set of eyes or ears to have a listen to something or take a look at something that yeah. we may have overlooked. So, so how do you go about finding a specialist? So for people out there who, um, you know, might be on a team. What's, you know, what's a good way you found, I mean, is it just Googling it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. At this point, it's just Googling it. Uh, unless okay. you know of people like at a university that's close by that, that wouldn't mind looking at, you know, a piece of audio, uh, you know, yeah. you can pretty much reach out to, you know, any, uh, accredited audio engineer, mm-hmm. um, that may be able to find a, uh, you know, something, the noise floor that you thought may have been, you know, a voice, that yeah. turns out it's just an electrical buzz from one of the pieces of equipment, either <laughs> right. that we were running or, you know, something that was in the house. Yeah. And, and do you, have you guys, um, you know, as kind of a peer review, have you 
shared stuff from cases with other teams that you guys trust, you know, to kind of get a second opinion or a third opinion on things? Yeah, yeah. We have a, a, quite a list of outside consultants that we use. I mean, uh, obviously, Michael White from uh, Paranormal Research and Investigations up in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a fantastic analyst when it comes to looking at video and listening to audio. I mean, uh, I've collaborated with him just in the last couple of months. Um through, through zoom and through Facebook, um, you know, just to have a second look at like a piece of footage that was sent by a potential client. Um, and, and, you know, I can look at something till I'm blue in the face. Um, and again, when you have somebody else look at it, it, it helps because they, they offer a fresh perspective. And Michael did that on, on one of the videos I sent him. It's like, Holy crap, you really nailed it on that one. Uh, and that helps. Um, right. And then, you know, we have, you know, Neil McNeil, who brings the parapsychology end of things um, to the table. And then, you know, I've got Ben Robison, who's uh, one of my best friends. And, you know, he brings a technical aspect to, um, you know, everything. So um, we try to, um, you know, bring people in that are like-minded, that that have the same kind of uh, core values um, and strengths that, um, you know, we pride ourselves on as as an organization. Exactly. And I think, you know, overall in the field, I think everyone needs to, you know, try and, and share with each other or collaborate, like you said. Um, oh, totally. You know, but, but go, you don't, you don't want to just do it with anybody you go with people, you know, or that you trust. And yeah. Get- well, and the, you know, and there's, there, there are, you know, instances where uh, I'll, I'll reach out to an electrician and I'll say, Hey, can you, company accompany us to a house and just kind of do a once over of the property and tell me, you know, is the electricity up to par? Um, and you know, sometimes they'll go, oh, okay. When uh, obviously when they find out what we do. Um, but then I think they appreciate it because they know that we're, we're not just going, Oh yeah, it's paranormal. That's, that's why, you know, the lights flicker. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes we'll bring in somebody who has a contracting background to look at structural stuff. Cause you know, obviously we don't have degrees in contracting and electrical work and plumbing <laughs> sure. and all that stuff. And those are things that, you know, we will absolutely reach out to somebody. If we, if we feel that there's something that needs to be addressed that we, that's not in our skill set or wheelhouse, then we'll absolutely reach out to people we don't know that, yeah. that are far more knowledgeable at something than we are. Yeah. And it, it, it's something you hear in, you know, psychic work a lot is, is putting the ego on the back burner. Yeah, you have to. And, and I think, you know, that, that pans across, you know, all forms of research, you know, not just paranormal, but. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You got to put your ego on the back burner, you know, and ask for help, ask for yeah. an opinion. Don't be afraid to do that. And, and, you know, that's one of the things I've, I've always, you know, liked with how, you and Oregon Paranormal and, and Ben Robinson and Neil, you know, how you guys approach it is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I think it's a, it's a great way to go. So um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, I want to get, see what your opinion of what is evidence. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Deep questions. <laughs> <laughs> So evidence, that's, that's a tricky one um, because there seems to be an abundance of it yet. There is 
still no breakthroughs apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think evidence would be something, you know, that coincides with obviously the claims mm-hmm. of the homeowner, the business owner, the property owner, um, something that, you know, may coincide with an event that took place on, you know, said property. Uh, and also something that can be backed up on multiple pieces of equipment, not just, you know, one voice saying no on an audio recorder. I want to see, and, you know, I talk about this with the guys a lot, but I, I like looking at the data. I want to look at like, were there spikes in the EMF field at that time? What was the temperature variances during that event? What was going on weather-wise? We really try to look for the why, the how, and the winds um, right. to, 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 to really help us, you know, figure out whether or not, you know, are we looking at a genuine piece of evidence or are we looking at just another piece of collected data that, um, you know, just ends up going in a file. Right. Um, so it's really tricky and there's so much out there. You have to be careful. I mean, the internet is just riddled with it. I mean, I see it on Facebook. I see it on YouTube. Oh my gosh. Obviously you see it on TV, but is that stuff being peer reviewed? One and um, how is it being collected? Um, Which, you know, which is why I have a lot of issues with, you know, the TV shows. It's like, you know, they, these teams go into these locations, they're recording all this data and then they take all that, that information, they're passing it along to an editor at some uh, production house. So there's no telling that so-called evidence. Was it actually there to begin with or was it manipulated? So again, you know, I, I rely on people who I trust that, that know how to look for that kind of stuff. And obviously I know how to look for that stuff too, but there, there's every once in a while. Well, like, again, I'll reach out to Michael. He'll throw something into, you know, Adobe Premiere, for example, mm-hmm. and he'll be able to dissect it and tell me if the video was manipulated uh, digitally. Was there uh, you know, right. masking done. Was there something added that wasn't originally in the film? Um, things like that. Uh, yeah. Really help when validating evidence, but it's, it's, you know, it's very, very few and far between you get a piece of evidence that's worth sharing with the world. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I always remember is evidence isn't proof. <laughs> Yeah, it's just uh, it it just brings up more questions. Exactly. <laughs> and which prolongs is, the investigation even yeah. longer, which is great. Yeah, no, exactly. And with the TV shows too, it's like uh you know, they may investigate for 6 hours, 8 hours or overnight somewhere mm-hmm. and they're compressing that whole bit into fit that time slot on right. on TV. And so what it's what's missed as well, you know. Or even like editing together, you know, a few days worth of their investigations, which I know some of the yeah. shows do go back for a couple nights or maybe three or yeah. four nights or something like that. And yeah, they no, that's true. Pile yeah. it all into an episode, but looking at it like a full scale case study, eight months, I mean, that's ample time to do your historical research, to do right. your uh, interviews with the witnesses and the clients. And um it just, it really gives yep. you the breathing room that you need to properly look at a case study. Yeah. I mean, you got to get a hold of all the, you know, local historians, 
Yeah, yeah. You know, go go through historical records, maybe at you know at City Hall or where. Oh yeah, got, tax you know, documents. Uh, yeah, we're we're no stranger to uh, the Salem Archives Department. And I think at the time when we signed up as members there, we were the first paranormal team to ever sign up for an account, <laughs> so that we could go through their um, their archives. And, yeah. and when I say archives, it's stuff that's not even on microfiche. I mean, we're still looking at death certificates that haven't been digitized yet. And oh, wow. there's been times where we've found, you know, a needle in a haystack, but that, you know, that takes hours, days, oh, yeah. sometimes weeks to find those. So there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of background, you know, stuff that, that goes on with these case studies that people just don't know about. Yeah, they just makes- think that oh, you interview the clients and then you go in, you do a little bit of re- a little bit of histor- history on it, and then bam, you've got a case study and and then you're done. Yep, but it, it's really not cut and dry like that. Yeah, no, exactly. And we do have a question from the chat. Um, so someone asks here, uh, if you bring in a professional to investigate electrical, structural, you know, a contractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they find a code violation, would they be required to report it? Um, we've, we've had past, um, people, um, that we've brought in that have, you know, picked up on obviously some bad wiring or, you know, some, some piping that was unstrapped or leaking. And, and what they do is they, they kind of jot it down and they, 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 they don't necessarily report it because there's really nothing they can do because there's no telling when those repairs were done. Um, but they can right, tell, right. they can tell us and they can tell the client. Yeah. So we found this, it's not to code. Just, I mean, we had, there was one time um, we had a plumber come in and he's like, yeah, that toilet, that's not to code. It's too high or it's too short or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's not something we were looking for, but we'll definitely pass it on to the client. Thanks. Um, but then there's, you know, there, there are situations where, you know, we bring somebody in and then there's, there's literally a potential for a life-threatening thing when you're right. dealing with carbon monoxide, for example. Um, we had a, you know, a case several years back where um, the the water heater had a gas leak and they didn't realize it, but it, you know, carbon monoxide uh, Northwest natural came out on our recommendation and, and they basically took their sniffer out there and it said, yeah. So they, they ended up replacing the lines and all, or I don't know if Northwest natural replaced the lines or if they had like an outside gas company or like a contract gas company do it or, or whatnot. But you know, things like that, um, those are detrimental to you know the family yeah has nothing to do with the actual case oh yeah um and then you know asbestos and mold and things like that i mean those those are all things that will either go on a final report or if we feel like it's something pressing we'll let them know right away yeah Um, you get it looked at and yeah because a lot of times especially with carbon monoxide for example um that could cause you know issues with the human body that could, you know, be misconstrued as paranormal activity. So, oh, of course, hallucinations stuff like, and all that stuff. Yeah. So when stuff like that happens, we make the recommendation, they get it fixed and we say, okay, let's, let's, let's sit on this for a little while and see if any of what you were experiencing disappears. And if it doesn't, right. then we'll come back in. Right. Exactly. It's you're, you're kind of mapping out the whole case in a sense. Yeah. 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 So, um, we're going to be getting ready to take a stage top of hour break here in a couple minutes. Um, but uh, so what, what is, you know, what's your best advice 
if you can quickly. <laughs> <laughs> what is your best advice for handling a case with a family in a credible matter? What's like the the top tier, top level thing you you would say to somebody on a team? Um, if you don't know the answer to a question that the family is asking, don't just spout off an answer because that can cause more problems than uh, anything. That's totally not what I was expecting. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I want to know what you were expecting. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, just that, you know, um, you know, being thorough, um, being conscientious, you know, I figured, you know, being conscientious of their, of their needs, not necessarily that you're going to try and prove the paranormal, but it's, it's, it's yeah. helping, you know, being focused on their needs and concerns. Well, and that, you know, it all falls into the, the way you have to approach the wording of stuff um, because they're already freaked out. So it, it's just, it's a very delicate situation that Scott is a master at. Yeah. Um, I've gotten better with it over the years, but there are certain trigger words that can cause panic in a client. And, you know, we have to be conscious of that. And I think that that's something that needs to be a top tier for anybody that works with a client. Exactly. Well, we're at the top of the hour. We're going to take uh, a station break here. And on the other side of the break, I'm going to ask Casey about some of his favorite experiences. We're going to talk about paranormal boot camp. We're going to talk about the permanence, uh, paranormal case study film that you guys are working on. And so we'll see you guys on the other side of the break. We're at the top of the hour on Let's Talk Radio. And this is the Paranormal Feet Show. WLTK DB Let's Talk He hasn't found any I'm Lisa Lacerra, Fox News Attorney General William Barr says so far he hasn't found any evidence of widespread voter fraud that would have impacted the outcome of the presidential election It was a declaration that drew a sharp response from the Trump campaign Attorney General Bill Barr telling the Associated Press, to date we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election The president's attorneys, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis firing back with all due respect to the Attorney General there hasn't been any semblance of a Department of Justice investigation. But the Attorney General dismissed the idea of widespread fraud, telling the AP, most claims of fraud are very particularized to a particular set of circumstances or actors or conduct. They are not systemic allegations. Fox's John Romper says the recount in Georgia continues. The official in charge of the new voting machines calling on President Trump to condemn the threats of violence against election workers. 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Gabriel Sterling, a Republican, says the president is within his rights to challenge the results of the election, but he shouldn't inspire people to commit violence. The Justice Department is investigating what it's calling a secret scheme that would funnel money to the White House in exchange for a presidential pardon or clemency. That's according to heavily redacted federal court documents. A Justice Department official says no government official is or was a target of the investigation. President Trump tweeting he will veto the National Defense Authorization 
Authorization Act unless federal protections for Internet companies known as Section 230 are eliminated from the bill. America is listening to Fox News. You've had enough to deal with this year, so don't overthink your holiday gifts. Since we've all been living in our sweatpants anyway, it's time for some pro-level Tommy John loungewear. I'm Erin Fujimoto, co-founder of Tommy John, and this year we're making sure you can give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list and yourself with Tommy John men's and women's loungewear. Say goodbye to old stained sweatpants. Tommy John loungewear is luxuriously soft and guaranteed to fit perfectly with the same level of comfort and innovation that goes into everything we make. Plus, our loungewear, pajamas, and underwear come in limited edition prints, perfect for gifting, but they sell out quick, so order soon. And there's no risk with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's extended Cyber Monday sale now to make sure your gifts arrive by the holidays. Go to TommyJohn.com slash Fox News for 20% off site-wide. Get 20% off for a limited time only at TommyJohn.com slash Fox News. See site for details. Sailing trip veers off course and lands four Americans in hot water. Just a mile and a half. Doesn't sound like much, but four Americans say they're being held like hostages in a bug-infested hotel room. Room for sailing into British Virgin Island waters, breaking COVID-19 rules. Lynn Hines from South Carolina telling a local DC TV station they realized their mistake after sailing into forbidden seas on November 19th on their way to St. John. Customs agents stopping them, taking their passports, the boat's documentation, and charging them with trying to enter the country illegally, which carries two $10,000 fines. Her husband says the captain tried to pay the fine, but only had credit cards and officials want cash. The State Department says it's aware of the matter and is providing assistance to the foursome. C.J. Papa, Fox News. In Holland, a law is now in effect for the next three months to stop the spread of COVID-19. It requires people wear masks in public indoor areas and masks are now mandatory in all schools except primary schools. Before the law, masks were only required on public transportation. The tech-heavy stock exchange NASDAQ, which has reached new highs, hoping to break another type of barrier. The NASDAQ wants to be the first major exchange to require more diversity from listed companies' boards, which are overwhelmingly white and male, filing a proposal Tuesday with the Securities and Exchange Commission to make it mandatory for its 3,000-plus listed companies to have at least one person on its board who self-identifies as a woman and another director from an underrepresented minority or one who's lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. If the plans are approved, companies will have four years to make changes, with foreign companies and smaller ones getting more flexibility. Lillian Wu, Fox News. Construction spending jumped 1.3% last month on the strength of single-family home building. This coming after a revision of September figures to a decline of 0.5%. I'm Lisa Lacerra, and this is Fox News. Our Medic Alert bracelet warns first responders that we kiss back during CPR. Pucker up, buttercup. We are controlling transmission. WLTK DB. Let's talk. Alternative Talk Radio. WLTKDB.com. Welcome back to the Paranormal Pete Show. I'm your host, Peter Bay, with special guest Casey Goodwin from Oregon Paranormal. Top of the hour here, and the second hour. And glad to be back with you, Casey. Same here, dude. 
So, you know, we touched a little bit on um, a, a lot of different things, I think. Um, but I wanted, you know, to ask you for the listeners out there, um, what was the first experience that kind of shook you or kind of left you just scratching your head more questions left you with more questions you know <laughs> i've only told this story to ben actually um it was well, now you're when telling I was still... it to a lot <laughs> yeah i am apparently two people three maybe <laughs> yeah maybe three yeah <laughs> your mom's <laughs> listening isn't she um probably <laughs> I was, uh, I was still living in California and we, we were literally moving um, up, up here to Oregon the next day. So I requested to stay in uh, my house uh, one last night, literally a couch, a TV, me, and that was it. And uh, my mom and my brother were staying at the time with her boyfriend um, and all of our goods. So the house that you know I was living in, uh, it was built in the sixties mm-hmm. and every once in a while, you'd always get kind of a weird vibe. And, okay. um, as a kid, I didn't really think too much of it, but I, I had this room off to the back of the house that had this kind of, it was a like weird sixties and seventies thing. It was an accordion door. And oh, when you yeah. open it, it would slap really loud several times until it actually opened or closed. Mm-hmm. And, um, at the time the door was closed and I'm in the living room and uh, what separated the living room from like the dining room. And then the door to my room was this brick pony wall or half wall. Okay. And I remember um, laying on the couch. I'd been watching, I think it was like, I was watching Conan O'Brien at the time, finished the show, shut everything down. It was about, I don't know. I think it was like one in the morning mm-hmm. and I could hear the door moving. Didn't think anything of it. I figured, oh, maybe there's a draft. Maybe I left the window open or something like that. And then I heard footsteps on the floor. And yeah, I was totally into the paranormal at the time, but was not prepared for it in my own home (laughs) as a 13-year-old kid um, who's by himself. Uh, with nowhere to go. Uh, and so closed my eyes, fell asleep and not 10, 15 minutes later, I could hear breathing in my ear. Whoa. Yeah. It freaked me out. Um, and it, you, you know, it was one of those chills. things. What was that? You just gave me chills. <laughs> yeah. And you know, honestly, I've never experienced anything that surreal uh, ever or since. And, um, I remember the TV was, the the TV was still on, but it was on mute. Okay. So the room was still illuminated. So the first thing I did was I jumped up and I looked around to see if anybody was there. Nobody was there, but the fricking accordion door was halfway open. And, and is that where you heard the footsteps coming from that? Well, that's where I heard the jiggling coming from. And then eventually I'm assuming that that's the direction they came from. Um, wow. And all, all the doors were locked. The windows were locked. Um, so I know that nobody got in the house cause I would have heard it. Right. Um, 
And I, I essentially, you know, spent the rest of the, the night watching TV with all the lights on in the entire house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was probably <laughs> my first most profound experience. And you um, had anything like that since? Nothing. Well, you know, I probably have, but I think, you know, just doing this for as long as I've been doing it now and being older and more reserved, um, they just sure. don't feel as profound as that moment. Sure. Well, you've, um, got a di- you've got a different perspective on it now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I look back at it now and it's like, man, I wish I could get back into that house. I would love to get back into that house. Right. You want and, to go back and see if you can maybe get some, uh, s- some evidence. <laughs> dude, I, I would absolutely love to go back to my, to, to that old house and, and, you know, conduct a proper uh, observation yeah. of the location for a couple of days. Um, wow. That's a pretty good experience, Casey. I'm, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> it was chilling for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I wonder if, you know, people listening out there, have you had a similar experience like that? Um, you know, especially with the breathing in the ear, that would freak me out. Yeah. And it was one, it was, and the, the, the most surreal part of that was I could hear it, but I could also feel the breath on oh, my, my hair. Oh my gosh. That's not cool. No, no, not, no. <laughs> that is not cool. Oh my God. So maybe it was just the house. It was the house's way of saying bye, I guess. Don't come back. <laughs> yeah. You know, just think of it like that. <laughs> just let it go down in your memory banks as, as it was just saying bye. It wasn't somebody yeah, that was yeah. creeping on you. Um, well, hey, we got a, a quick question from chat here. And this kind yeah. of touches on a conversation before the break. Um, so the question is, you know, being sensitive to the client's concerns is great, but what if you determine that they don't share the same understanding of reality as most other people? You know, that just goes with the territory. I mean, so, so, you know, one of the things that you have to deal with is the fact that, and we get this a lot. Sometimes somebody will contact us. Hey, I've got this piece of video. Can you take a look at it? We take a look at it and go, oh, yeah, you know, this is dust. This is a bug. Um, I can tell you that confidently because I know I've I've had those experiences on my own home security systems. Right. And then they fire off. Well, that's just your opinion, blah, blah, blah. Um, So a lot of times people already have um, a predetermined outcome as Mm -hmm. to what it is they're experiencing. And when that happens, they build this belief system around it. And, and a lot of times it's, it's very difficult to sway them. And um, the best thing we can do is present them with our findings. If there are any and recommendations, if they want them, we we'd be happy to recommend them to another team if they feel like they need a second opinion. And a lot of times they do it anyways, regardless. Right. Mm -hmm. But um yeah, you know, people are stubborn. <laughs> so, <laughs> Especially when it comes to beliefs, right? Yeah, yeah. And so no no amount of research or time spent um does the trick sometimes. And that's just how it's that's just how the 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 game is played. Yeah. And I and I think this question and your answer touches on another point too of just how important the client interview is when you're doing exactly. an investigation, because right then I think you could kind of almost determine, 
you know, all right, these people are going to be stubborn. <laughs> we can do what we can, yeah. but, or maybe yeah. you don't yeah. take the case, you know? And that's one of the reasons why we, uh, not only do we, we obviously we take notes while we're doing an interview process, but we also have a piece of audio that's rolling the entire time mm-hmm. to capture not only what they're saying, but if there is anything there, there's a potential of getting a piece of data that could be used in the overall case study if we decide to move forward. The other right. thing we do is we videotape. I just said videotape. Oh, my God. <laughs> you dated yourself. <laughs> I take our digital video camera. There you and go. Uh, we basically uh, interview each of our clients or witnesses separately from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get them on film. Because a lot of times when you're taking notes, you're not paying attention to social cues, things like the batting of the eyes or looking exactly. one way or the other, or they're fidgety. Um, so by recording it and then taking it back to our core team um, and, and reviewing everything, that really kind of is more of an eye opener than the initial interview process because you pick up on all those things and it's like, okay, when I asked this question, they did that. Or when I asked this question, they kind of skirted it and didn't answer. So those are things that we can take back to them um, and re-ask them or figure out a different way of approaching the question. Um, And and then, you know, sometimes the interview process helps us weed out um, people that are trying to, uh, you know, pull a fast one on us. Yeah, exactly. And do you guys, I mean, in your experience, have you found um, when you get to that kind of portion of the interview where you're individually, uh, you know, interviewing each client on, on video, mm-hmm. do you find, is there a lot of pushback from people usually with video? Um, every once in a while. And, you know, we, it's not, you know, a set in stone rule that we have to do video. Obviously if they're not comfortable with it, then we will, we'll nix that idea. Right. But we always have audio rolling no matter what, because that, that is a piece that has to go into the final report or, you know, the, the overall case study file at the end. Um, but every once in a while we, we get a little bit of pushback, but once they spend a little bit of time with us, get to know us, realize that, you know, we're just, we're normal people. We have sense of humors, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, they, they really start to open up to us because I mean, yeah. let's face it, we're asking very personal questions. I mean, we're asking questions about, you know, uh, m- mental and physical history on, on each of the witnesses, each of the clients. Um, we're asking if they're on prescription drugs, are they on, you know, uh, controlled substances, things like that. I mean, they're very personal Yeah. and in the wrong hands. I mean, anybody could do a lot of damage with the information that's you know gathered from a case study right so you know on top of that there's a lot of other forms that have to be signed confidentiality forms and things like that yeah i was just going to ask if you had uh you know waiver forms or Mm -hmm. you know that sort of thing and and do you guys um are you guys signing some sort of you know agreement with a client as well that you're not going to share the personal information or Yeah. So I don't have the form in front of me at the moment, but there are a couple boxes that ask um, if we do pull any data that uh, we construe as being evidence, can we publish it? Obviously anonymously, we're not going to, obviously if there's, you know, family photos in the, in the evidence or if the, or, you know, tax documents, we're not going to do, but if it's something that we know can help forward, 
the field or help another potential client from another team that's dealing with the same thing, um, we try to get them to okay us to release that kind of information. But as far as personal information goes, that's always confidential. Yeah. And that lends to just the whole, you know, credible approach um, to build that rapport with a client and you know, where you're getting, like you mentioned before, people are, you know, they still call you back, you know, even years later, you've built that rapport with them. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, anyone out there who's on, on teams and or you're just kind of, you know, learning and stuff, this this is great stuff because it's not stuff that people normally think about on the front end. Right. You know, going into the realm of paranormal research and investigations. Yeah. And, you know, at the time when we were starting out, we didn't have, you know, a lot of uh, resources. You know, obviously we had Lloyd's book um, and but, you know, the the internet searches at the time, there just wasn't really, there wasn't much out there. Yeah. Um, and, unless you wanted to pay uh, a membership fee for, you know, one of these sites and there wasn't something we wanted to do. So it was a lot of book work, a lot of book work and a lot of like reading abstract articles that were written by parapsychologists from, you know, the last 70, 80 years who have been putting in all the work. And that's yeah. not just in America. I'm talking about, you know, uh, the SPR and in, in, in England and all that stuff. I mean, trying to really, you know, figure out how it was we were going to run, you know, a, a successful um, organization. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to talk uh, about SPR and stuff uh, with uh, Neil McNeil in two weeks. Nice. And I was kind of joke. I was kind of joke with Neil that every time I talk to him about the paranormal, when I'm done with the conversation, I'm questioning everything I thought I knew. Oh and, yeah. Neil's good at that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, you know, parapsychologist will leave you thinking, well, darn it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't really know much. <laughs> yeah. I've, well, I've, you know, I've gone to him for experiences that I've had in the past. Yeah. And I've gone to Lloyd too. I mean, I, I had the pleasure of, you know, becoming friends with Lloyd and having long conversations with him about experiences I had in the past and just getting, you know, his feedback, you know, was there yeah. something that I overlooked? Yeah. Um, well, so hey, it's, we, it's uh, nice to have those. Yeah. To have those resources for sure. Well, hey, we got to uh, pay the bills exactly. here and take a, take a quick break here. Uh, and then we'll be uh, we'll be back with Casey Goodwin on the Paranormal Pete Show on Let's Talk Radio WLTKDD.com. We'll see you on the flip side. Of all the radio stations in the world, we're one of them. WLTK DB Let's Talk Alternative Talk Radio WLTKDB.com Ever wanted to host your own radio show? If your answer is yes, then the time to act is now. 
WLTKDB Let's Talk is now accepting new programming more affordable than ever. You create the show idea and we'll take care of the rest. Not only do we create your program intro and provide broadcast training, but also syndicate you to popular outlets like Apple and Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and more. You get all of this starting at 100 bucks per month. Three packages to choose from and built to make your wallet happy. Contact us at WLTKDB.com with your show idea and let's bring your dream to life. All topics accepted and you have full rights to your program. Contact us today and reserve your spot on WLTKDB Let's Talk. What are you waiting for? Let's do this. Going on vacation can be an overwhelming task. Let's face it. You want the best destinations at the cheapest prices, but where do you even start? The confusion stops now, and Mickey World Travel is exactly where you need to be. Ryan Wren, a travel consultant with Mickey World Travel, will take the reins and leave you with this instead of this. No way! From Disney Cruises to Walt Disney Parks, Ryan works hard for you and gets you that perfect vacation you deserve. Getting started is as simple as calling 615-815-5529. That's 615-815-5529. Or email Ryan at ryan at mickeyworldtravel.com. Ryan Wren and Mickey World Travel. Making memories that last a lifetime. Second hour, episode two of the Paranormal Pete Show with your host Pete Orbea, and I'm here with special guest Casey Goodwin from Oregon Paranormal and Paranormal Research at Large, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Been doing it for a long time. Um, so we've had some a uh, couple of great questions on the chat. So I want to thank everybody out there uh, listening for for submitting questions. If you got more, keep feeding them. We'll we'll keep answering them. Um, and we're here on WLTKDB.com and you can join the station chat there. So if you have a question for, for Casey or, or myself, uh, throw it in the chat and we'll go for it. Um, so, you know, we were talking about evidence earlier <laughs> and some experiences. And so I, you had dug up uh good pun, dug up a couple <laughs> of, of audio clips and, I found, you know, between what you said, both really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so the first one is, sounds to me like a, it's a voice that comes through. Mm-hmm. And um, it seemed, was this on an early investigation in your, in your career? Uh, 2000, I want to say like, no, I think it was November of 2010. If it's okay. the clip I'm thinking of. So man, right about 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. That you, that you got that. So give us a little background on it, and then we'll play uh, clip one after you give some background. Yeah, so we were uh, we were called in by a family, well, a husband and wife, mm-hmm. who had been experiencing some things in their home. Um, they were freaked out, and to the point where they would go out to the sidewalk and call us because they didn't want to talk about whatever it was. It was in the house and uh, almost like, you know, they didn't want to talk behind their back. Wow. And 
so they called us in. We we went and did the initial walkthrough and interview. And to this day, it's one of the most active cases that we've ever worked as an organization. It's one of the most active cases I've ever worked as an independent researcher. Um, wow. It took place in a little town uh, called Dallas, Oregon. And it was this little uh, Victorian house. It was a little over 100 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And it had had uh, an add-on of a second story at, at one point, I think in the 50s or 60s. Um, right. Unfortunately, a lot of the documentation from that case got lost when our, one of our hard drives failed. Um, oh, no. But luckily, I had some of the the, the evidence from that case. Um, and we're still in contact with with the family, and and you know they're awesome. They're always constantly giving us updates. But That's one of the claims so cool. was that they felt the presence of this little girl. And I kid you not, man, when we were there doing just the interview, they, they had us over, they cooked us dinner. We're chatting around their kitchen table, had the audio recorder rolling and you could hear a door upstairs close. Okay. And they were the only people in the house aside from Scott and I. Right. And they're like, yeah, that happens all the time. And then you could hear like footsteps walking around and that's very rare when you hear these kind of things in real time, especially during, during a walkthrough. Right. Um, Later on, we found out that we had this voice of a little girl on our walkthrough audio. Like she was just talking up a storm during dinner and all that stuff. Well, so, you know, fast forward uh, about a month or two later, we actually finally get in there. It's about uh, the end of November. November, a very cold outside and we're we're setting up for the investigation and one of our investigators um had a piece of audio rolling and he was already kind of just he was jazzed to be there because he was new on the team so he was doing an evp session even though we hadn't officially started yet and so in the clip you're going to hear some investigators talking in the background because we're basically coming up with a plan of attack for the rest of the night Right. And he asks a specific question and he gets a response and um, you'll know the response when it actually hits, but yeah, go for it. And then we can kind of yeah. talk about it. After. Yeah. Let's uh, let's hear clip one. Oh, weird. Okay, so part of that clip was cut off. Yeah, let's hear it again. Well, you can definitely... Oh, it's so weird. So you can definitely hear like a female voice. Exactly. So, so leading up to that female voice, because uh, you can hear the investigators in the background before she comes in. Right. So the investigator in question who was asking the questions, his question was, what do you miss? And wow. we get that response. Sounds like a little girl. And to us, it sounds like she's saying mommy. Okay. I was going to ask what you guys thought it said. I, I had a hard time understanding, but it did sound kind of like two syllables to me. And there were two different recorders going at at that time. So so the investigator had his audio going, but we also had already set up static recorders throughout the house. 
Okay. And we also picked up the same voice on a separate recorder that was in the dining room. That was even louder. Nice. (laughs) That's great when you, you know, you're getting something on multiple devices. Yeah. Um, Wow. That's pretty cool. And I, I always think about, uh, uh, when you and me and Jay Verberg in the Walker Ames house, the Uh end of that investigation. And we, you just wound up the last cable and then we heard somebody hello god and that's (laughs) from the top of the stairs (laughs) that's happened three times at that damn house and we've been there each time and we've already shut every it's like it's like they know that we've shut everything down yeah and then they say hello yeah no i think they do that on purpose (laughs) you gotta you know and you guys in that clip you know uh and in, in what you were getting through your walkthrough, I mean, that just proves you, you got to have your audio going like the whole time you're at the location. It's like that you scene know? in Poltergeist when the um, the light start flickering and he goes to take the photo, but the caps on the lens and yeah. and, <laughs> exactly. and uh, I think Craig T. Nelson or the or the the, the wife says you got to be quicker than that around here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Quick draw McGraw is what you yeah, need to be. Yeah. The, yeah. No, that's awesome. So um, I want to uh, do another clip here and this one is taken at the old Wheeler hotel, correct? Correct. And so give us a little background on this one. So uh, Katie, the proprietor of the hotel uh, that we're actually filming the documentary at um, her and Jay took off for uh, about a week or two, they went to Europe. And so I asked, Hey, is it cool if I do some filming for the documentary while, while uh, you guys are gone, I want to do some experiments, maybe a little bit of investigating. And um, one of my first nights there, which I believe was like a Friday or something like that in January of uh, 2019, um, I set up a audio recorder on the piano in um the, what's called known as the piano parlor on okay. the uh, complete opposite side of the hotel from where I was staying. And usually what I like to do is I just, I'll set up a static recorder and just let it roll the entire night. And then I'll wake up in the morning, I'll pick up the audio recorder and then I'll do a data dump on my computer or a hard drive and go mm-hmm. over it later. So fast forward to the next morning, I'm, I'm going through the audio from, from that night and I see this blip on uh on the computer screen <laughs> and when i say blip i mean like i think it registered at like 700 hertz or i mean it was ridiculously loud Whoa. and when you're listening to these audio clips they tend to be super quiet so you have to crank the volume up yeah and you gotta bring i out. jumped yeah. out of my skin when, when i heard this because i wasn't expecting it um, a, yeah i gotta say i did had the same reaction when i after you sent it to me and i listened to it i about jumped when it when i heard yeah it as well and so this this was recorded at around three in the morning i've been asleep for probably a good three or four hours at that point and i'm also at the other end of the hotel behind another set of closed french doors and okay. um there's nobody else on the property i was the only person with a key to the building And there were no businesses that were open at three in the morning downstairs. (laughs) Um, So yeah, go ahead and roll it. Yeah. Play clip two. (laughs) 
That was so quiet. I can't, <laughs> I can't it sound <laughs> let's let's uh let's hear clip two again. Let's check it out. much better there it is (laughs) i mean it's it's pretty loud what i was able to determine the noise where it came from is inside the parlor room not only do you have you have the the piano but at the corner next to um the wall there's a uh i don't know what kind of instrument it is it's a six string i don't know if it's like a mandolin or, or or whatnot but it's a hollow body Mm-hmm. And it's a it's an old antique, and what it sounds like is somebody's flicking the back of it because there's this there's a reverberation that you get from yeah. like an acoustic guitar. Yep, very very loud. Yeah, and again, impressive. I I don't know. Uh, no strings were broken on it, so so that obviously wasn't the case. But I honestly I have no idea uh, what could have caused that thing to pop like that. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's just if it's been sitting there. F- so long as it is and nothing like that's happened before that makes it even more interesting or at least yeah. it hasn't happened when somebody's heard it or captured it on you know right. an audio device and there wasn't um, it wasn't like there was a weird like temperature variance that would cause the wood to pop or anything like that i mean it was a constant i don't know like 69 or 70 degrees in the building at, at that point in time hmm. and it wasn't yeah, windy outside i mean it was it was a very calm weekend for for the coast yeah yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty big thump. Do you find when you get um, and I've I've done this before, and I have to stop and laugh at myself when you you know uh, like I've gotten you know a piece of audio from the Walker Ames house, or mm-hmm. um, I've heard you know a disembodied sound mm-hmm. uh, of some sort. You know, do you find yourself tapping around on the walls and the railings and? <laughs> Windows. Oh, I obsess over it because right. I want to find out. Like, is, yeah. is it something natural, or did I just hear what I think I heard? Yeah, because um, you really want to dissect it uh, before jumping to any sort of paranormal conclusions, right? And, um, and I'm, I'm honestly not necessarily saying that that the clip we just heard is paranormal, but it's not something that normally happens that I know of at the hotel. And I've asked Katie about it. I've asked Jay about it. They've not heard that sound in all the time that they've lived there. Yeah. So it's a head scratcher for sure. Yeah, that's, it's a good one. And then, so um, clip three is, is, was that taken the same night? This was the same night, maybe about an uh, 30 or 40 minutes later. This one you might want to crank up (laughs) if you can. Okay. Yep. Let's hear clip three and they'll have you talk about it a little bit. Okay, that might have been a little quiet. Yep, uh, go ahead and run it again. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, well, that one might be a little hard to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, same night. So, well, basically, tell us what you think. What so, you think, you know, what your opinion is of what is on that clip. So the last time I was at the hotel, Jay and I took the time to recreate um, the, the scenario. We put the audio recorder back where it was. And uh, so there's a, there's a business downstairs right okay. below where the piano room area is. And okay. within that business, there's a bathroom. Well, there's two, there's a women's and a men's. So what he did was he went in, turned the fan on for both of the uh, bathrooms to see if, you know, we were, you know, picking up a residual sound from, uh, one of the bathroom fans. Okay. I couldn't even hear him enter those bathrooms. So we, we had to rule that out as an option. Okay. The next thing we did was we started systematically going through each of the rooms in the hotel that were near that area. Okay. And um, we kept coming up short, but then we got to the room directly behind the piano, which I believe is and i i don't i was i meant to print a map of the hotel it's either room six or room seven okay and um it's got a bathroom connected to it and i pushed record jay hit the fan in the bathroom and started walking on the floors so what we couldn't hear in that clip that we just played was you hear the fan kick on and then you start hearing somebody walking around on the carpeting in that room. And because of the age of the building, you can hear the, the floor creaking. Yeah. Um, again, I was asleep and I'm the only person in the building. So um, I, don't, I don't have an explanation for that. I had cameras rolling and mm-hmm. there was no you know, outside source that got into the hotel that night. So um, I don't know. Yeah, that, I think it's it's just it's fascinating when you stop and and think about it. Even uh, you know, using critical thinking and stuff, you know, there's just some things you just can't just can't quite explain. <laughs> yeah, at some point you hit a wall, and then you just kind of have to accept it for what it is. Yeah, and and just say I can't explain it. Yeah, you know, don't and not be afraid to say I can't explain it. And that's uh, the, and those situations are what keep us going. Exactly. It's most of investigating is boring mm-hmm. <laughs> during exactly. an actual investigation, but it's that, you know, uh, it's 95% boring, but that 5%, uh, you know, where you, you know, capture something on audio or video yeah. tied, tied with personal experience and all this stuff, uh, you know, that, that makes it all worthwhile. It's that 5% that keeps us all going. Yeah. Yeah. I equate so. paranormal research to, Watching paint dry while doing your taxes. <laughs> That's a great analogy. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, uh, you know, this is. I wanted to talk about the documentary film Permanence, yeah. uh, paranormal case study, and it does take place at the old Wheeler Hotel. Yes. And um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about you know what led to the film production and why you guys chose the old Wheeler hotel and could, and that is in Wheeler, Oregon. So uh, give us a little on, you know, what kind of led to the, to the, to the film and why you guys chose that place. So what led to the film was kind of our dislike of the way uh, paranormal research is being um, 
portrayed in you know film and on tv i mean for example any travel channel discovery and destination america just those channels alone equate 47 currently running shows on the paranormal wow i did not know the number <laughs> <laughs> of of those 47 some of the titles so so these these trigger words are in the actual title of the show you've got hell you've got fear you've got terrifying afraid horror nightmare terror and demon so it's obvious that the shows are marketing the paranormal as something that needs to be feared and that's just not the case and we wanted to show you know the world what it is we do and try and do it on a molecular level. I mean, show all of the steps that go into a case study. Right. And, you know, this all started, it was just the seed of an idea at a bachelor party for Ben uh, Robison, who I mentioned earlier, who's you know, good friends with you as well. Um, so he asked me to be his best man at his wedding. And, you know, with that comes a bachelor party. <laughs> well, what do a bunch of paranormal researchers do? We uh, we we got permission to investigate a hotel for an entire weekend that happened to be the old Wheeler Hotel. So in that, um, obviously, the League of Extrasensory Gentlemen was formed between Michael White, Neil McNeil, Ben Robison, Jay Verberg, and myself. Um, but the seed of the documentary was sparked. And I said, hey, why don't we do a documentary somewhere? At that point, we didn't have a location set up. Um, I, I think at some point we were thinking about doing it at, uh, you know, some, I think we were talking about maybe doing it at the Walker Ames house and talking with uh-huh. you and the, and the city officials. And then we started thinking of like other locations in Oregon. And then right. Katie's like, well, why don't you do it here? And, and for her to say that was an honor because she doesn't let people into, I mean, it's her baby. It's, it's her castle mm-hmm. and she's very protective of the permanents that live there. Right. And, and we'd been friends with her for several years at this point. So she knows us, she knows how we work and, and she respects us and we respect her. And so it was like a perfect marriage. And we started, you know, researching equipment because mind you, none of us are filmmakers. Uh, we can <laughs> so definitely see we're filmmakers now. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, all, been your, a huge it's all your dream. fault. Yeah. It's been a huge learning curve because, you know, not only are we the investigators in this documentary, but we're also the directors, the cinematographers, the film editors, the audio guys. I mean, we're literally wearing all the hats. Don't forget the grips. And the grips. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're actually, uh, uh, Ben Jay and I are actually going to be filming this weekend for the first time since this whole COVID dumpster fire happened. Awesome. Great Um, to hear that. So, yeah, so, so we're, we're moving forward at a snail's pace. Um, but you know, what's beautiful about this project is the fact that, you know, I, I keep saying, you know, this long-term case studies are important because it, it, it really helps you paint a, a, a bigger picture of what, what it is you're studying. And so far we've been researching the, the events at the hotel for the last three years. Yeah. With any luck, it won't go past five years <laughs> and we'll be able to, you know, get enough footage and, and yeah. uh, data that we can throw together a documentary. But 
we're taking our time and we want to do this right. And we want it to be something that believers, skeptics, people on the fence are going to enjoy. And, and we want people to walk away with, you know, like we were saying, you know, more questions than they had before they started watching the documentary. And yeah. we have to do it in a way that is not only respectful of, uh, of the, the field and our, our, our current colleagues, but all of the people that came before us, Tony Cornell and D Scott Rogo and uh, William G Rawl and, and Auerbach and, you know, all of these people, yeah. uh, because I feel like we owe it to them because they've kind of been shafted uh, as far as uh, paranormal uh, shows are concerned. Nobody ever right. talks about parapsychology. It's always ghost hunting. And yeah. when people do talk about parapsychology, it's like they're, they're talking bad about it because um, <laughs> they don't understand it. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that's a real disservice to not only, you know, us, but the entire field as a whole, the ghost hunting community, the, the research community, the parapsychological community, yep. it, it all has uh, a play in this. Yeah. And what's nice about the permanence is we're taking organ paranormal, the autonomous study of the enigmatic and paranormal, paranormal research and investigations and paranormal studies Institute. And we're all combining our forces to do this huge case study on one location over a long period of time. And you never see that kind of uh, cooperative uh, research being done in this field. So hopefully this will open doors for uh, communication between other teams later on down the road that says, Hey, you know, this isn't a territory fight. Let's all kind of have a goal in, in mind that we can all, you know, work together on. Obviously there's going to be a lot of fringe groups that, that don't want to work with, with people and everything. And that's fine. I get that. And, you know, a lot of those groups die off after a year or two when they realize that there's a lot of work that goes into this. Um, But, you know, we just, we want to, have something that's entertaining and that's thought provoking. And I think we're, we're on the right path. Yeah. It's, I can't wait for it, for it to come out. Um, I mean, the hotel itself is beautiful. It's, Oh yeah. It's, it's so cool and unique um, in itself. I mean, it's just, you could just do the story on the, on the building. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and that's the other the thing building. we, we want the building to tell the story. I mean, you, you yeah. look at, all of those 47 shows that, that I was talking about that are currently active and right. their, their main focus obviously is fear. Um, not all of them, most of them. Um, right. And they focus more on the investigators. I want to focus on what the, what, what does the building have to tell us? Um, whether yes. it's through the history, whether it's through guest experiences, whether it's through the people who work in the building, yeah. All those firsthand accounts, that's that's what makes a case study. And well, you sound, you sound I, th- I think like, it needs uh, to. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was going to say it sounds to me like you're thinking like a psychic. You want to know what the location says to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, in a sense, exactly. And and you know, we will be bringing psychics in mm-hmm. um, as part of it because um, we have to look at all all avenues um, it, it, for it to be a case study. Sure. Yeah. Whether yeah. or not the psychics pick up on anything, 
mm-hmm. remains to be seen at the moment. And, and we won't know until the case study is concluded and we actually are able to analyze all the data and present it in at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, because one of the things that, you know, Hans Holzer uh, used to do religiously and William Rawl and, and a lot of people that worked with, you know, deep trance mediums and psychics mm-hmm. was they would have them fill out these forms and then they would lock the forms up and then they would do a round table later on and reveal what these psychics w- were picking up. What, what were their impressions of these locations? Wow. Um, and, and I think that'll be a really important aspect of the film as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was uh, lucky enough to come to paranormal boot camp, the class you guys held at the old Wheeler hotel. And um, I was just amazed, amazed by the place. And it's a beautiful, beautiful building. Yeah. And, you know, I, I felt some stuff there and um, you know, I feel like I had seen some things, but I, I feel like that's the only place I won't say what or where mm-hmm. that I've uh, been touched by something where I recognized what happened. Right. And I don't think I've ever had that anywhere else that I can think of. And I'll tell you that experience stuck with me for a few days. It, uh, you know, I've had afterwards. experiences there as well. And I'm still, you know, I constantly go back to these experiences that I've had and I, I, I just, I want to get back and I'm, I'm like chomping at the bit to get in my car on Friday to drive out there because it's, <laughs> I haven't been out there since this damn virus uh, hit. So yeah. like I need to get out there because I, yeah. I, I need my Wheeler kick. Yeah. I mean, it's been what, since March. Yeah. Like yeah. I think stopped. Yeah. I think the last time I was out there may have been January or February when Ben and I were there by ourselves yeah. doing more filming while Jane while Jay and Katie were having fun at Disneyland. So <laughs> why do um, they get to do all the fun stuff and you guys do all the dirty work? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Crawling around in that basement. And, but you know what? I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade any of that for the world. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. such a unique building with such a rich history. Um, I can't wait for people to experience it on the big screen. Yeah. So, so have you, and me too, man, it's going to be so cool. Um, have, did you like, did you guys have any experiences while filming? Like, is there anything that might show up on the film? Uh, nothing yet. Um, okay. Hopefully, hopefully that will change, but it seems like a lot of the experiences are happening when we're just there staying as a guest. Um, That's which, probably which on purpose. <laughs> I, you know what? You're probably right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so at the end of this documentary we, we might just come up with a big fat goose egg <laughs> well yeah no no i don't think you will um but no, i'm really looking forward to that coming out now how would people find uh information on the film where do they where do they go to check it out so we've got kind of a, a placeholder.com it's the uh the permanencefilm.com but if they want to follow us on social media um permanence is on instagram uh, we do post a lot of uh, production stills and behind the scenes stuff a lot of the time on Instagram. And I think it's just the permanence on, yeah, on I that think so. page. Mm-hmm. And then uh, permanence film on Facebook or uh, if you type in permanence, a paranormal case study, you should be able to find it on Facebook. Um, yeah. As well. And YouTube, YouTube as well. Um, YouTube. Yeah. We're, we're yep. 
at this point, I think we're pretty much everywhere because I've noticed that a lot of these other bot sites have kind of picked up our videos and then like filtered them to other websites. So the oh, Google okay. search has gotten a lot broader <laughs> for us. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good for, for exposure. Um, and, and so you guys have, um, you know, I, on YouTube, there's a number of trailers. Uh, there's a behind the scenes one. So for everybody listening out there, you guys got to go check out uh, the trailers for this. Uh, it's, type in the permanence of paranormal case study and you go to YouTube and you'll find some videos. Follow them on Instagram and on Facebook as well. Uh, you can also look up the League of Extrasensory Gentlemen. That's, uh, you know, that's who these guys are uh, as a conglomerate. And uh, be sure to follow them and you guys can keep up with them on the film. I'm so happy to hear that you guys are picking that back up um, after having to halt production for so long. They can also follow us on uh, League Films as well. Uh, uh, League Films oh, yeah. on, because uh, we, we're, honestly, we do uh, other side projects as well. I mean, we're, we've uh, we've done a co- uh, one short film for Ankasha. A mentee. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're currently doing another film for a client. I can't give too much information. Oh, away, okay. Yeah. But, no, 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 no but it has to do with, um, with uh, psychometry. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. It's going to be super cool. We went to some really cool locations in uh, the Port Townsend area of Washington. Um, so I'm really excited uh, to get that one in the can as soon as you know we can get back to editing (laughs) well hopefully this next year will be you know easy for uh restrictions and people being able to get back to you know doing what you guys do you know filming getting keeping this thing rolling yeah um and real quick i also want to touch base on uh we got just a few minutes left yeah on paranormal boot camp and so i mentioned that i was able to take that at um the old Wheeler hotel. And it was just mm-hmm. such a cool experience. And we've all, you've also hosted one in Port Gamble and you've also hosted it at the Oregon ghost conference. Yeah. Um, and so tell us, you know, a little bit about what paranormal boot camp is. And if you guys have um, plans for future boot camps coming up uh, with hopefully a better year on the horizon. Yeah, there's definitely going to be more on the horizon. We just got to figure out how, uh, how to do it safely, at least until uh, everything gets contained. But um, right. yeah, the boot camp uh, it was something that we decided we wanted to do uh, quite a few years ago, actually, um, to kind of uh, boost attendance at the hotel during the slower seasons. And what better right. place to do a boot camp than a haunted hotel? Right. So <laughs> what we wanted to do is we wanted to offer different types of classes, not classes that basically say, this is how you're going to catch a ghost. No, they're, they're, they're more organized and uh, in, in a way that shows you how to, you know, uh, capture data and catalog it and, and tag it and uh, to go about working with clients. Um, like some of the different classes that we offer would be like um, Neil, Neil opens the, class, uh, the, the, the weekend with uh, parapsychology basics. Then we offer a second class, which is uh, preparations for paranormal investigations. Mm-hmm. Third class is uh, investigative conduct, which is a huge thing. Right. Um, the fourth fourth class is investigative data review, and then like the final, the the final culmination of the weekend is after all the classes are done, we get to take the uh, attendees and they get to investigate 
and put what they've learned in all of these classes to the test. And then on the next, uh, the next day, the final day of the event, we, we try to get them to, to go over some of the data that they collected and see if there might be any evidence um, within that. Now, when so you it's, guys, a, it's a really fun weekend. Oh yeah. I loved it. Um, and, and my wife, Molly had a great time too. Hi, Molly. Um, <laughs> Hi, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when they, when you get to the investigation part of the of the boot camp, I mean, do you guys do a full setup? Oh yeah, yeah we yeah. we do a full setup, and usually we uh, we make all the attendees help do the setup because they need to know what goes into taping wire and making it a safe environment and right. getting camera angles down and and writing down locations of audio recorders and directions cameras are set up on a map of the hotel. That way, if we have to recreate something later, we've got a guide of exactly how things were set up during the investigation. Right on. I knew the answer to that question, but I just wanted you to say it for everyone listening out there. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's a great, great. I mean, I, um, you know, uh, I've been doing, you know, investigations and research since, you know, uh, around 2011, and I took this in 2019 and um, had a blast. I mean, I learned, I learned a lot. Um, you know, I, each part of the boot camp was beneficial to, you know, helping kind of further my development as an investigator and as a researcher. Right. So, you know, anybody out there interested in doing something like that, make sure you follow these guys. Um, you know, you can look up Paranormal Boot Camp 101 on Facebook or the League of Extrasensory Gentlemen. We're everywhere, everywhere. We're like Um, the player's card. We're everywhere you want to be. That's right. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So, well, we've come to the end here and Casey, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on for the, you know, for the length of the show. And thanks for having me, man. This was a blast. Yeah. Awesome. It's always fun to talk shop with you. Um, and I look forward to having you on again at some point because I Definitely. think there's a lot more that I think we can we can dig into. Um, but the you know I only get two hours, so only two hours, right? <laughs> we'll talk about Transformers next time. Oh my gosh! All right, <laughs> Voltron. Here we go. Yes. Um, so, but Casey, I want to thank you so much again. Look up Oregon Paranormal. Um, look up the permanence, a paranormal case study, check out paranormal Boot Camp. Casey's got a lot going on and it's really great stuff there. And I appreciate you coming on next week. I've got psychic medium, Seth Michael. So next Tuesday, uh, December 8th, 8 PM Pacific and 11 PM Eastern time. We'll be closing out your night for you on a Tuesday night on let's talk radio. And I'll leave you all with this. The past is history, the future's a mystery, but today is a gift because it's the present. Be sure, be sure to remember that, and we'll see you all next week. Be safe, be well. 